1950, Walt Disney was putting out several different animated movies, but they were not particularly selling very well, which is hard to believe for anything Disney, but it's a long time ago. But they were not doing well, except they came up with another movie that would turn out to be a blockbuster. It was a movie about singing mice, memorable phrases like bibbidi-boppidi-boo. It had to do with pumpkins that turned into coaches and a beautiful fairy godmother who transformed a little a, a woman um, who was really just you know, terribly treated by, by her family. And of course, we know what happened is the fairy godmother sprinkled whatever it was on her, and she got to go to the ball. But at midnight, remember what happened? She had to go back to where she was. The story, of course, of Cinderella, and the story of Cinderella goes way back to time, and it got Disney-fied as they took that one and made the story. What's interesting in that story of Cinderella, it has the same kind of theme that many movies do, that idea of transformation. Somebody going through some significant change that changed their life, changed their attitude, changed maybe their understanding of the world. In fact, if you look at how many TV shows there are that deal with that kind of idea of transformation, you can think of these extreme makeover things where maybe they've got this ugly house and this whole team of guys are brought in and they film it all and they kind of make this a beautiful house in just a single weekend. The other one I was looking up on for when we talked about extreme makeovers was uh, women. It had a thing that if you won this deal, it said you will be going to work, uh, you'll be with one of the top cosmetology, not cosmetology, but sort of like, oh, best surgeons that we have for plastic surgery, and you're going to get a tiny, complete thing dealing with your teeth, and you're going to be the most beautiful woman there ever was. And it goes all through this idea of transformation. You're no longer an ugly duckling. You're going to be beautiful if you win the prize. That theme of transformation, of change, of things happening that make a big difference to the world is right through our passage this morning. We're going to be talking about transformation and transfiguration, two words that come, very, come from the very same root. That idea of a change, something going from one to another. So turn with me, if you would, your Bible to Mark chapter 9. And while you're turning, let me remind you about last week, what we were at. And last week in chapter 8, we focused on one of the most challenging teachings that Jesus brought out. It was this thing where he was at Caesarea Philippi. He was with them, and he asked this great question. He's with his disciples in this beautiful place, and he says, who do people say that I am? And you remember the story. Some said, well, some think you're the prophet. Some think you're Elijah. And he said, Peter, who do you think I am? And Peter says, I believe you're the Messiah, the Christ. It's the same word. You're the Messiah. You're the Christ. He gets it right. He comes with the right answer. It's that thing that, yeah, great, you got it right. We got the right answer. Peter did it. And then what happened, of course, he shocks his disciples by saying, you got it, Peter, you're right. And you know what's going to happen to me? He says, I'm going to be rejected by the religious leaders. I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to be killed. But I'm going to rise again. And so if we hadn't, the first time, Peter getting it right, here's Peter's opportunity to put his foot in the mouth once again. And of course, that's what he does. And so he says, what, what, you know, let's not talk about this stuff. I mean, we're on the ball. Everything's happening good. We're doing well. The crowds are all about. It's great. Don't give us this negative stuff. That sounds so negative about dying. 
And then what does he say? Didn't get behind me, Satan. He goes from the hero to the zero, as we mentioned last week, because he realized, he didn't, or I should say he didn't understand that it was God's will that his son would go to the cross to die for our sins. And following that was that famous passage, the cost. He said, if anyone will follow me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. We talked last week about the fact that maybe we need to ask ourselves, am I a fan or a follower? And that's been a good question this last week to think about. Am I a fan or am I a follower? Our passage this morning goes right in with it. And to be honest with you, it starts with a very difficult verse. Uh, I want to be real honest. Let's look if you would at chapter 9, verse 1. Then he, Jesus, said to them, I assure you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come in power. Now, this is a hard verse. If Jesus is talking about the second coming, when Christ comes again and completes his kingdom, then the scriptures are wrong. Nobody's lived that long. I mean, if he had lived 100 years, it's still been over almost 2,000 years. But it's interesting is that the early church fathers who were reading this did not take that in the same way. When they said that you, there are some standing here who will not taste death, they take it as understanding Jesus and talking about his resurrection. Maybe that's what they're talking about here. And as we're going to see as we come later in the passage, there's another possible way of understanding it. But what happens, of course, is what we're focused on, we're focused on is the section that we call the transfiguration. And so look with me at verse 2, because this is a very, very interesting passage. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them on a high mountain by themselves to be alone. Let's stop right there. Six days. The question that comes up in this, like, why six days? After six days, Jesus takes them up to a high mountain. The question is, why? What's interesting we're going to see here in a couple different places is that it seems like Jesus is continuing to look back to the time of Israel, particularly focusing on the time of the exodus, of God working in the lives of the people. Because the question is, it's that he's going to go to a mountain. Well, there's only about two mountains that are nearby. Mount Hermon to the north you could go to. South of there you could go to Mount Tabor. You probably have in a picture there of that place. And of course, it's kind of just a flat plain with this da-da-da, this mountain there. When we go to Colorado, we go by this place, Capulin, I think it's called Capulin, whatever it's called. What's it called? Capulin, volcano. It's like flat, and suddenly there's a thing there. And that's what this is like when you go to Israel. It's amazing. You drive along, it's flat, and suddenly it's there. And so I think it's probably Mount Tabor. The early Christians thought that's where it was, that Jesus had the transfiguration. But notice what it is. It said, why six days? They could have walked there in two, either way they went. And it could be this. Many people think what's happening here is he's looking back at the Old Testament, and they're thinking, what would a Jewish person think of when they hear the word six? Is that right? Going too fast. Six. What would they think? Well, six days of creation. What else would they think of? Well, you're talking about six days of creation. You can go back to the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, it talks about Moses going up in the mountain for six days. There's all these connections here going on with the sixes that's happening here. And so it would remind them of Moses. It would remind them of the creation. It would remind them of the Exodus of what was going on. But notice who he would. It says Jesus took them a high mountain. And again, we're not sure. I'm going to assume it's Mount Tabor. And what's interesting here is that it, if this is the place, it's incredible. Think here at this place, 
It's like God meets man here on the top of mountain. It's also interesting that Jesus did not take the whole gang with him. He only took the inner core, Peter, James, and John. And again, those who are from the Jewish background are listening going, oh, wasn't it when Moses went up in the mountain that he took only three men with him? Yes, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu. In other words, there's all these similarities going back and forth. It's like Jesus is continuing to look back to the Old Testament to help us understand what God is doing now. Now look at the second half of this verse. It said, he was transformed in front of them. That, trans, that word transformed, I could ask John or David to tell me, what is the verb? John, what's the verb there for transform? Do you remember? Close, metamorpho. We get the English word metamorphosis. Okay, David, aren't you lucky that I called on him first? You what? Oh, <laughs> we don't want you to get a seizure here. Is there a doctor in the house? Where's, where's Dick? He's back there in the thing. Dick, we see you. Okay, we'll call you Dick if we, okay, got it. Thank you very much. Okay. We got this word metamorphosis, and you heard that in biology, this idea, remember the chrysalis going to the beautiful thing, or the ugly duckling becoming the beautiful swan. This idea of metamorphosis, both of these two words that we're talking about here that we call um, transfiguration or transformation are all coming from that same root. And it's this idea of change. And what's interesting here, the way it describes what Jesus was looking at, was looking like, it said his clothes became dazzling extremely white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Which is interesting. You know, if you do laundry and you got something you got to spill on it and you're trying to get it clean, that was a big thing with them, trying to get their clothes white back then. Of course, I guess we still do today. But now notice verse 4, which is very significant. It says, Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Now, this passage is so fascinating. There's a lot of things where we wish we could get a clear answer on it. But here's a question for you to think about. Why these two guys? Okay. For example, it says, okay, who, those came up. It was Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Why them? I mean, there were other people you could think of. I mean, maybe uh, you could think of Moses and Elijah. What about Moses and Abraham? That'd be an interesting discussion. Uh, or it could be David and John the Baptist. That would be another good, nice person, couple to have over to your house and understand more about their lives. So why these two? And it's interesting, he starts with Elijah first and then Moses, even though Moses came earlier than Elijah. Well, here's three reasons maybe why he focused on these two men. First of all, both Moses and Elijah were seen as deliverers. Okay, both Moses and Elijah were seen as great deliverers. Now, Moses is the easy one, of, easy one to understand. He's the one that took Israelites out of their bondage okay, in Egypt. But what about Elijah? He did not physically take them out in that sense, but he was a deliverer too. He's the one, when he saw Ahab and Jezebel um, making the nation more and more corrupt, following the gods of Baal, that he's the one, his great moment up on Mount Carmel. We said, well, let's have a little experiment here, and you put your things here and your things, and I'll put mine, and we'll see if fire comes from heaven. Of course, you know the story. 
It's 450 of them against him, and the fire comes down, and they destroy the whole. And so the idea of Moses was a great deliverer. Elijah was a great spiritual deliverer of keeping Israel from going into total paganism. So that's number one, why it's Elijah and Moses. Number two, Moses and Elijah, uh, what's significant, they both met God on the same mountain. At Mount Sinai, real early, Moses, of course, did, where he got the law from God. But, you know, long time after that, Elijah, when Ahab says, I'm going to kill you, I'm going to get you, you're in trouble, and he leaves, and he gets to that point, and he's discouraged, and he's in a cave, and there's God speaks to him, and the cleft in the rock, and the whole thing about the fact that um, this, this soft voice, the voice of the Lord. And so it's interesting that both of these have a big encounter with God that impacts their people. Third reason why it's probably Elijah and Moses with this, they both had strange endings to their life. For Moses' example, he was buried in an unknown grave, like by God. How did God bury? I guess just any way you can do it, but it's kind of odd. You can't go to, like, when you're in Israel, we'll actually be in Jordan at that point, and you can't go over there and say, here is the place where Moses was buried. We don't know where it was. And when you have something like that that you don't know, all kinds of speculation comes. And Elijah, of course, is even stranger because he didn't have to die. He was just, he was taken. And so both of these guys have a lot of mystery around them, and Elijah particularly. And, of course, as you remember when you read the Old Testament, the very last chapter is about talks in Malachi, how Elijah is going to come at the last days and he's going to turn the children to their parents and their parents to their children. And it's a beautiful passage. And so it makes a lot of sense that these two guys, you've got Elijah and you've got Moses, are there talking with Jesus. So if the first question is why these guys, this next question is what did they talk about? I mean, inquiring minds want to know. What was the discussion that was going on? It's interesting. I don't. We, obviously, the scripture doesn't tell us, but uh, I can. You can bet that there's one particular thing they talked about, and that was the fact that Jesus is headed to the cross. Remember, we're in the second half of the book of Mark, and in the book of Mark, what we have here is that now Jesus has turned his direction, looking ever closer to coming to the cross. And so, what we see is that probably that discussion was, "Here's what's coming." Now look with me at verse 5 and 6. <laughs> it's almost, there's almost a lot of comedy in verse 5. Then Peter said to Jesus, uh, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let's make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And I love this little thing that, that Mark puts in here. He said, because he didn't know what he should say since they were terrified. It's like... You know, some of my mother saying, you know, if you have anything to say, just don't say anything. You know, but he had to think of something. And to him, now think about this, he thinks he is really honoring Jesus to think that he's up with the two big guys, Elijah and Moses. He doesn't realize that Jesus is the one that is the most significant, not Elijah and Moses. And that's what makes this passage so interesting. It says... Uh, I made one for Moses, and by the word here is this word tabernacles that's used. It's in, the, in the Old Testament where it's talked about, even today, even when this, in this church, when they have a, a service, they, had, they built what's called a sukkah, which is kind of a, um, 
kind of just kind of a hut made out of branches and during the Feast of Tabernacles. And he said, well, I'm going to make three of these, like three things that we can remember. You know, you can write on it. I was there when Moses stood here and Jesus stood here and over here was Elijah. And, of course, the Lord's going, oh, you don't get it, do you? Once again, he's kind of putting his foot in his mouth. And so it says, they were terrified. And look at verse 7. A cloud appeared, overshadowed them, and a voice came from the cloud. Remember again in the Old Testament, we hear a lot about the cloud. When it came time to build the tabernacle out in the wilderness there, they had the tabernacle. What happened? There was this cloud that descended upon it. Already earlier than that, there the cloud had descended upon the mountain where God gave the Ten Commandments and the other commandments. This idea of the cloud is the visible presence of God with his people. You can't see any form. You just know a cloud came out. If you came out of this morning real early, the cloud was thick. It was, it was really hard to see. And it's this idea of the cloud coming down saying, God is here. And when you have the tavern, when you have the David's temple, when they go through this whole thing, when Solomon finally finishes that temple and they have that great service, it said there was the cloud came down and it was so 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 dense you couldn't see anything. It was the idea, God is here. He's present with his people. And so what you've got in this passage is saying, the cloud appeared. Once again, saying, it's God saying, I'm here. Do you get it? I'm here. And then the voice came from the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. This is the second time we've heard the voice of God. If your memory is good, in chapter 1, Jesus goes into the water to be baptized, and there's the voice of God saying, You are my beloved son. I take delight in you. So there at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, You've got the voice of God speaking, you're my beloved son, I take delight in you. But now he's speaking to these three men, particularly speaking uh, to yeah, the three disciples of Jesus, and he said, listen, he speaks to them. Listen, you guys, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. So it was before he's speaking to his son, saying, listen, you're my beloved son, I want you to know the relationship here. The second time God speaks in the Gospel of Mark, it's speaking to these three men saying, you need to know who this is, who you're dealing with. Listen to him. And of course, this goes right back to the Old Testament again. We're in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. Moses is told, tells the people, here's what's going to happen. There's going to come a prophet that is greater than I. When he comes, listen to him. Once again, you're getting this connection between now the New Testament and the Old Testament, saying there you know, we're told to wait. Listen for that guy to come. And he's saying Jesus is the one. Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecy. He is the one that you need to listen to. And so what you have, the cloud appeared, overshadowed them, the voice, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Then suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus alone. That verse, verse 8, is so important. Except Jesus alone. Moses, great. Elijah, great. Jesus, in a whole different category. A category that's beyond what we could ever imagine. And what he's saying is, do you recognize when these two are gone, the only one left standing right there now is Jesus. There's the focus. It's about him, about what God is doing. 
And so what you have in this passage is extremely important. And what's so important about this passage is it's talking about the exclusive nature of Jesus. He is not the one among the many. He is the one and only. That statement that I just made can make many people angry. Well, who are you to say that your Jesus is just the most important one? Well, you know, all these other religions, they have their things too. You don't have to understand what's going on. The world has changed from the time of our grandparents. Many of you remember that commercial they used to have for Oldsmobile? This isn't your father's Oldsmobile. Okay, the same thing today. This is not the same culture that your grandparents knew when they were growing up. That has totally changed. We live in a postmodern world. Some would say now it's a post-postmodern world. A place, a world where there's no longer truth, truth, there's only my truth. A world where all beliefs are equally valid or equally invalid. And the trouble is, is we have this thing that says so many people are going to find this absolutely abhorrent if you're going to say Jesus is the one and only. About 25 years ago, I was helping out at a church, and um, they said we were, we were at it was a Unitarian church, and we were renting space from them. And I remember they said, okay, would you help out in the children's ministry? I did, and we, none of us had ever been in the room. So he came walking into the room, and here was this big room, and had these very nicely done murals that went all around three sides of the room. And in it, right in the center, there was Jesus, holding hands with Mohammed on one side, Krishna on the other, and next to Krishna there was this guy, and there was Confucius, and they're, all of them were holding hands. Everybody just loves each other. Everything is all the same. And, you know, they had everybody there but, you know, Yoda or something. I mean, they, they were all there. And so we all stood there for a minute and said, what do we do? I mean, even these kids can't read. It's basically making a statement. It's all the same. I mean, everybody has to find their own way for God. And so we took all these panels that they had, and we put them all over so they didn't see it. Now, I don't think it necessarily destroyed their faith or what they had, but the point is you're trying to teach Sunday school about the uniqueness of Jesus with all these other people around. And the reality is we live in a world where more and more people see Christians as intolerant. You're, you're not really trying to say that Jesus is the only way, do you? In a world of billions of people, how could you think that? You must be a really, either you're ignorant or, or you must really just think that you're special with your special God. Who are you to say that there's only one way to God? This is going to become a big issue, particularly for the children that are here right now. This is going to be huge. And it's going to be a real question of how are we going to deal with this. Tim Keller, whose book I left down here. Honey, would you get that for me? That, that one right there, that book? Thank you, man. Tim Keller, as many of you know, some of you have read, he wrote a drift, terrific book called The Reason for God, Belief in an Age of Skepticism. He writes in the very beginning about the fact that he was asked to be on a panel with a Muslim and a Jewish person, and the three of them would have an ongoing discussion. And it was a good discussion. What was interesting at the end is they all came to the same spaces saying, you know what, the reality is there's a lot of similarities between us, but the reality is one of us has got to be wrong. Because all three of us have certain claims of what we believe to be true, and they can't all be right. 
And what was interesting is he said, you know, one of the things I keep hearing, of course, remember, he's ministering in downtown Manhattan. This is like ground zero of secularism. And God has used him in a great way there. And listen to what he said. Here's what I keep hearing in different phases. All major religions are equally valid and basically teach the same thing. Now, you've probably heard that from someone. Here's what he writes. The assertion is that, that is, this assertion is so common that one journalist recently wrote, notice this, anyone who believes that there are, quote, inferior religions is a right-wing extremist. Really? So he says, do, do we really want to say that the Branch Davidians or religions requiring child sacrifice are not inferior to any other faith? Are, are the ones that are eating children or something just as well as Judaism, Christianity, and Islam? The great majority of people would almost certainly agree that there's a difference here. Most people who assert the equality of religions have in mind the world's major faith, not splinter sex. This was the form of the objection I got from the student that night when I was on the panel. He contended the doctrinal difference between Judaism, Islam, Christianity, Buddhism, and Hinduism were just superficial and insignificant. They all really believed the same God. But when I asked him who that God was, he described him as an all-loving spirit in the universe. The problem with this position is its inconsistency. It insists that doctrine is unimportant, but at the same time, it assumes doctrinal beliefs about the nature of God that are at loggerheads with those of all the major faiths. Buddhism doesn't even believe in a personal God. Judaism, Christianity, and Islam believe in a God that holds people accountable for their beliefs and practices and whose attributes could not be reduced to love. Ironically, the insistence that doctrines do not matter is really a doctrine itself. It holds a specific view of God, which is touted as superior and more enlightened than the beliefs of most major religions. So the proponents of this view do the very thing they forbid others to do. It's a great statement, and by the way, it's a great book. But what it really means is two things. One, if you're a young person, you're going to college, you're working in the world, you need to recognize there may be a cost. There are clearly examples already now where people who are applying for schools, they're applying for fellowships, and they say, oh, well, you know, they're one of these Christian people. Oh, well, they're not our kind of people, are they? You may miss out on jobs. You may miss out on opportunities because you don't go with the system. That says, oh, it's all the same thing. We all believe the same thing. If you stand up and say, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and he calls all men and women to repentance and find life with him, you could find yourself very lonely on a college campus. And so last week when we talked about the fact, are you a fan or are you a follower, particularly for our young people, this is going to be a huge issue. It'd be easier to be quiet. It'll be easier to just go along with the flow. And yet Jesus Christ is calling you to say, will you stand up for me? The culture is going to hell in a handbasket. But in the process of, do, of that happening, God is still calling people to know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And we shouldn't live with a sense of despair, with a sense of opportunity. Many of these people have tried everything there is to try, and they're lonely, and they're broken, and they have no answers. And we have the answer in Jesus Christ. And so, for one, we need to be willing. Are you willing to count the cost? Number two, 
there's a section thing, be, if that's true, then we have to be committed to helping our young people to understand what is true and what is not. It's often been said, the person we mentioned in a school right here in Dallas, they said by the end of the first semester, about a third of the students have given up their faith. I hope that's not true, but I've heard stories like that again and again. Students coming home from Christmas or coming home for the end of the first year, they have ditched the whole Christian deal. And it's going to happen more and more unless we are investing in the lives of these children, helping them to understand what the gospel really means. And so we have, even as our congregation, we've got a commitment that we have to make to help our young people understand what's going on. They can walk into a college campus and not come out shaken. They can understand what the major issues are, how to understand what's going on, how to share their faith. Those are things that God is going us that we're going to need to do. One, there's so many things. There's many things there are. Many of you are familiar with things programs. I just got one this week that looks very interesting. It's called the Table Conference, put on by Dallas Seminary. And it's like a lineup of great speakers. Lee Strobel, many of you know him. Uh, his book has had an impact on many people. Craig Blomberg, one of the best Christian apologists in the world. Uh, Daryl Bach, who many of you know. Dan Wallace, one of the best New Testament uh, scholars of the time. They're all having a conference that's coming up two days uh, in April. And I have some more of these if you want in it. But these are the kind of things where well, it's not this or something else. The question for us that are parents that have children is a question, what are we doing to prepare our children for a very different world that they have grown up in? And are we committed to helping them along that path? You see, this passage is claiming again the centrality of Jesus Christ and the exclusiveness of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father above me. Either that's the biggest bunch of baloney you ever swallowed, or it's the greatest truth upon which we build our life. And the question is, would we be willing to pay the cost if maybe we don't get the job, we don't get the fellowship, we don't get the opportunity that others get because of Christ? And the second thing, those of us who have children, who have young people particularly, what are we doing to prepare them for a world that's very different than your father's old mobile? Father, we thank you for this passage that speaks to us that there were three, but then there was just one. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that that one, the Lord Jesus, is more than sufficient for all that we need. We thank you for the fact that we could be worshiping here today. Help us not to cave in to a culture that tells us it's all the same that it's not the same. The uniqueness of Jesus, the one and only, is the one to whom we've committed our lives. Only in him can we find life forever and life worth living now. Be with us, Lord Jesus. Help us as we continue in our worship. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.